I only feel good if my numbers are up. I feel bad if my numbers are down. And we can do that as podcast hosts. Oh, if I'm not selling sponsorships or I'm not getting this many downloads or likes or comments, then it's a bad episode. And I, and I thought, what? I'm a bad host and I don't have good guests and the guests aren't sharing it enough and all that stuff that we get so stuck in our head. How about I had a great conversation? How about I put something good into the world? How about that relationship with that guest turned into something I could never have anticipated and not be so attached to the outside outcomes in that particular moment defining our self-esteem? Podcast Junkies, episode 202. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. Conversations with amazing podcast personalities. And this week is no different. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with Leah Culver, co-founder of Breaker, and all the cool things they're doing with that podcast app. So make sure you check that out, episode 201. And this week, I've got the pleasure of speaking with a longtime friend and actually one of my original clients with my company Fullcast. His name is John Livesey, and he's the host of The Successful Pitch. John's such a great storyteller, and his own origin story is one you're definitely going to find very, very interesting. We talk about his career trajectory and the importance of never burning bridges. He discusses what he's learned along the way. We learned about how he's grown as a host of his show and some of his early inspiration. He explains how the podcast has been helpful for him to build relationships and the importance of mentors. His podcasting journey has led him to have a greater perspective and also understand the importance of resilience. A very inspiring episode. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlet 2i2, which is my go-to sound card. I was so happy to see Dan Hewley and the Focusrite team at Podcast Movement recently, and I couldn't be more happier that they are an ongoing sponsor of Podcast Junkies. This sound card is so clean and it's my go-to recommendation for new clients. Even if you have a microphone that has a USB output and you're tempted to just go directly into your laptop, I can't recommend highly enough how much better your voice will sound once you're routing it through the clean preamps of the 2i2. And this 3G version is a thing of beauty. They've even added an air mode which enhances the quality of the sound. As always, you're able to monitor your sound directly from the Scarlet, and there's even a solo version if you don't need both channels. I typically use the 2i2, but I've had some clients set up the solo and they're just as happy with it. It's just the one channel in, um, and it's a really compact unit. So nothing but good things to say about the Scarlet 2i2. It's my definite go-to recommendation. Today's episode is also brought to you by Beyond the Podcast. Sponsored by AWeber, it's the premier virtual summit for podcasters. It's going to be held on September 18th from 11 a.m. Eastern to 3 p.m. Eastern. When it comes to simple email marketing solutions, AWeber is definitely one of the market leaders for entrepreneurs and small businesses. This awesome free one-day event is going to go way beyond episode downloads. Six of the top most successful podcasting experts in the world, including myself, will give you the proven and actionable tips and advice on how to grow your listening audience, secure strategic sponsorships, market your show in new creative ways, and make your podcast more profitable. All you need to do is go to beyondthepodcastsummit.com, sign up for free, and you'll also be entered for a chance to win a brand new podcasting setup. So let's get into our conversation with John. And don't forget to stay to the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. So John Levesay, 
longtime friend, uh, long overdue guest. Welcome to Podcast Junkies. Thanks, Harry. Great to be here. So for the benefit of the listener, uh, John and I know each other now probably more than four years now. Yes. Is that about right? <laughs> it's uh-huh. crazy. As I was getting started with my business, Fullcast, John was one of my, actually my, one of my first clients as well. So we've, we've had a long relationship and we helped launch uh, his show with a successful pitch, which has gone on to do amazing things. So we're going to tell that whole story. Um, I'm excited to share the story with my audience and glad we were finally able to make the time. I think as a starting point, everyone loves a good origin story, John. So <laughs> <laughs> let's let's focus specifically on uh, you. Where do you remember where you were when you you had heard about this thing that was making the rounds in in the entrepreneurial spaces about the importance of having your own podcast? Yes, it was shortly after you and I met, and we were in this group coaching session, and um, the concept I kept hearing was find out what your ideal client needs and wants, and more importantly, is willing to pay for, mm. and then create that service. And my niche was helping, at the time, startup founders create a good pitch to get their funding for their startup. And as I was zooming in on how to reach them and how to do that, a lot of them kept saying, yes, I definitely want to hire you for my pitch. But I also then need an introduction to an investor who I can give this pitch to. And I said, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't know any investors. And uh, another people said, yeah, but we would pay you for both the pitch and the intros. And, and then someone out of the blue just said, ah, well, why don't you start a podcast and interview investors? And then you'd have this network of investors you could, you know, refer people to. And I was like, why don't I go to the moon? I don't know how to do that. I, what? That seems crazy. Um, and the irony of all that was, um, meeting you and you're like, well, that's what I do done for you podcasting services. And I was talking to another friend. Now I have over 200 episodes, usually one a week in the can. And so that's like four years ago. Right. Uh, and she had said, oh, I wouldn't pay anybody to do that. That's crazy. You could figure this out yourself. And I said, I don't know. It's a lot of hours per episode. And I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't even want to know. I don't want to do it. And she has yet to launch hers. So <laughs> I think that's the big thing is realizing, you know, stay in your lane. Stay in your sweet spot. Um, as our former mutual friend and coach said, you know, figure out what your genius is and one hour of that pays for someone else to do something that you're not really competent in. Or even if you're competent, you don't love doing it. Um, So that was a godsend for me because I realized I had a lot of fear around hosting a podcast. And I literally created a TEDx talk (laughs) that includes this. And I still talk about it when I give keynotes is figuring out what you're afraid of and putting faces on it. And the big one was not just the fear of rejection of how do I get a good guest, but the fear of um, failure, what if nobody listens? And then the big one where you came to the rescue, Harry, was um, the fear of the unknown. And I'm like, I don't know how to edit this. I don't know how to promote it. I don't know how to do anything. And that almost completely stopped me from over. I go, I'm like, I can sort of deal with fear of rejection and fear of failure, but this fear of the unknown technology stuff just seemed like it would be a disaster. So, um, my whole thing now is that I tell people when I give keynote talks is the way to overcome the fear of the unknown is not go it alone. 
And so as you were getting started with the show, um, what were some of the things that you're sort of learning along the way in terms of um, did you have previous experience interviewing or what, what were some of the things that you had to learn early on? Well, I've been a guest on shows and uh, radio shows um, and even TV a little bit promoting my first book. So I certainly knew how to be a good guest, but I definitely needed some tips from you on how to be a good host. And obviously preparation is one of the key things. And I remember um, having um, Jay Samet who wrote Disrupt You as one of my early guests. And he wrote a review for me on LinkedIn saying, you know, one of the best journalists that's ever interviewed me, you could tell he read my book and he asked really smart questions. And I'm thinking, oh, did I just get called a journalist? Uh, so that was the big aha. And uh, then another early guest was Judy Robinette, who um, we became friends and actually went into business uh, for a while together, uh, helping people get their startup funded. And she introduced me to a lot of investors to be on my podcast. So all it takes is one really connected expert guest to then open that network up for you to grow your podcast. And uh, the irony for me is my career and my podcast has pivoted, and yet the name Successful Pitch still works. Because now I interview um, thought leaders and authors and other speakers, because that's the world I'm living in. And I've also interviewed speaking bureaus. I just interviewed one this morning to be a guest to promote their business, which separates me from all the other speakers out there who don't have a podcast, which very few do. And now I'm able to come to them as a differentiator and say, would you like to be a guest on my podcast? Here's several other bureaus that have been on and use this as content to promote their business, to get new business and have social media and all that stuff. But I think it might be interesting to hear the story of how I got the first speaking bureau. Definitely. You know, after you have a few or more episodes under your belt, there is that tipping point that happens where people hear about the show, um, start reaching out to you to want to be a guest. You're not having to scramble. There's a waiting list or you say no sometimes if it's not a fit. And out of the blue, a gentleman named Bernie Swain reached out to me on email and he is the founder of the Washington Speakers Bureau, which is the top speaking bureau. I mean, he literally um, has had all the former presidents as clients. And he had a new book out on entrepreneurship, and he wanted mm. to reach an audience of people who would listen to a podcast who were entrepreneurs, and that was certainly my podcast. And I thought, holy cow, this guy's, you know. And he told the story of how he had to compete against Reagan's acting agents when Reagan left office to get Reagan to work with him as his speaking agent versus that. So again, once you get that one guest, which in this case he approached me, which blew me away, um, then all the other speaker bureaus are like, oh, well, I based my whole business model on what he did. So yes, if he's been on your show, that you have the credibility and, and then that's what allows me to um, get represented by other speaking bureaus because after they've been on my show, they typically get to know me and like me. And, you know, to get somebody at that caliber to give you a half an hour of their time is unheard of because speakers are inundating them with pitches and can I talk to you? Can I come meet with you? And they're like, I don't have time uh, to, uh, so the whole half hour, just like an investor, it's the same niche. So I, I just wanted to point that out um, as even if your podcast and your career changes, 
if you have a generic enough name, it can still work uh, and grow and pivot. Um, I have lots of stories of how I've monetized that. If you want to have me talk about that, I can certainly do that as too. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the different business models and what you, the reason you started the show and how that's changed over time? Well, I, as I mentioned, I started the show to get build up my network so that people would hire me for the pitch and the introductions, those warm introductions uh, to investors, because investors would say to me after the show, listen, if you have a good founder, you know, my job is to, f and if they've got a good pitch after working with you, you can make the intro and warm intros are the secret sauce to, you know, they would literally tell me we hear 25 pitches, 2,500 pitches in a year, fund 25 of them, 1%, and 24 of those 25 come from a warm intro. So again, big problem I'm solving. Not only bad pitch in a bad room is why you don't get an answer. I could solve both sides of that. I'll give you a great pitch and I'll make the right strategic. That person only invests in mobile. So why would I invest and introduce you to an investor and you're not in the mobile space? So it was very targeted. And then, as I said, I uh, now focus primarily on giving keynote talks to sales teams. Here's another big takeaway, and I was doing this unknowingly at the same time Tim Ferriss was doing his, which is I took 10 of my favorite episodes and turned it into a book. So I really monetized that content and then was able to get on television as the expert on how to ask for what you want and get a yes. Again, the name is The Successful Pitch, but the publicist was so smart, um, he was able to pivot that into something that TV audiences would want to hear. And now my latest book is Better Selling Through Storytelling. And I've been able to go back. Uh, I was just back in Nashville giving a talk to a division of Honeywell. And when I was in town, I went back to uh, the producer of a talk show there called Talk of the Town. And I said, hey, I'm, you know, remember me from two years ago? I was on your show talking about, and I have a new book. And, um, you know, the segment idea could be how to go from invisible to irresistible. And uh, she goes, oh, that sounds like a great segment. And by the way, you know, a lot of people who watch daytime television are stay-at-home moms. Do you have any tips that could apply there? And I said, yes. Many of my friends who have kids tell me all the time, I say to my kid when they come home, hey, how was your day at school? And I get one-word answers. Good, fine, okay. And I said, what if you asked your kid, hey, tell me a story about the best part of your day. That's great. Oh, now your kid has to learn some storytelling skills, has to tell a story, they get excited about it, you just keep... And so that is another example of the podcast, all about speaking, helping me get speaking gigs through interviewing speaking bureaus, getting on TV with the new book, even though the book is about better selling through storytelling, adapting that like I did the successful pitch one into something that was meaningful um, for the TV audience. A lot of good things to unpack there. So um before we leave the the startup world what's some of the um you, you've spoken to so many startups who were in the process of trying to perfect their pitch so i'm wondering you know we, we, we do have people that are entrepreneurs that listen yes and and obviously i'm working on a new startup myself as well so mm -hmm. what are some of the, the if you could think of top three tips for improving your pitch for for startups that are trying to get either more attention or more funding or even acquiring talent, you know, what's something that comes to mind or that you've seen consistently? The number one tip for a startup, whether you're trying to get a new investor or a new client, or as you said, attract and retain the talent, is you must have your story of origin down pat. Why are you uniquely qualified to 
execute this idea? Did it something you personally experienced, your expertise and your background? That because what you need to really be able to have that honed so clearly that people go, ah, I see your vision and I want to be part of that vision, whether it's an investor, a customer, or as an employee. And the second part of that is becoming a master storyteller. And that's what I put in Better Selling Through Storytelling is actually step-by-step what to have on each slide when you're pitching to get funding and how to tell that story. Remember, it's about the team. So you need to tell the story of how you've attracted this great team, why this team is uniquely qualified and so passionate about it and why we're all on the same vision, and then how you've been able to get a customer. You know, the one investor said, you know, if you're selling dog food, I want to see some dogs eating the food, which is a cool way of saying, what's the proof of concept? And again, you're asking people to change their behavior. So whether it's of all the pitches I hear, why do I want to invest in you? Well, that's the story that makes you memorable and emotionally compelling. So have a story of origin, tell your team story, and then make sure that it's consistent and that you're willing to practice it. So many founders say, hey, I'll just wing it. And, you know, be prepared for what kind of questions you're going to get asked. Like, what's your exit strategy if I invest? Oh, well, uh, and then they start making it up on the fly. And I've seen investors say, you're not answering my question. And the longer your answer, Mm. the worse it is. You should be clear, concise, and compelling, the three C's. You need a good pitch, needs to be clear, concise, and compelling. And I found the best way to be all three of those is to have a really great story that does all that. So let's back up a little bit, jump in the time machine. Can you talk a little bit about your career trajectory? Because mm. uh, I know part of that is, is really interesting. And I know when we first started working <laughs> <working> together, <laughs> yes, you had, you had some interesting ahas. I did. Well, I, you know, look, Steve Jobs said it on one of his uh, graduation commencement speeches. You can't really connect the dots looking forward, only looking back. And so one of the things that I've been able to really look at now is, and I think for the listeners, the takeaway is even if you think what you're doing now is not going to benefit you in the future, it will. So my original career was in Silicon Valley, learning how to sell multi-million dollar mainframe computers in the 80s against IBM, which was selling against fear, uncertainty, and doubt. If you buy anything that's not IBM and it breaks, we're going to point the finger at the other vendor and you'll get fired. That was my aha moment that just having the best product and the cheapest price doesn't get you a sale. So learning that technology was huge and how to sell against that. Then I moved from Silicon Valley down to Southern California and made a huge career change and worked for a small ad agency doing TV commercials for movies coming out on video DVD back in the day when Blockbuster still existed. Wow. So that's where I learned my storytelling skills. I'd take a two-hour movie, work with the editors and the creative people on how to edit that down into a 30-second commercial. And then how do we take those commercials we've done and create a video sizzle reel so that we, I, as a salesperson, could go out to Disney or other studios and convince them to hire us as their agency? And guess what? Can you define sizzle reel? Because I know it's sure. a common term that's used in the industry. Yep, a sizzle reel is... Here's a compilation of all of our work. 
here's a clip of this commercial, a clip of that commercial, a clip of this commercial. And that's what you would show as uh, that would be my tool to get uh, a new business client to say, oh, I want to have you do our commercials because I've seen some of your work uh, and they don't want to watch all the commercial. They just want a snippet of it. So it has to be edited together with you know great graphics and music and the best of the best. Now, the irony is as a speaker, guess what? I need a speaker video demo sizzle reel. And I know from having done that for the agency, what a good one looks like. So there's an example of something you think, oh, I'll never use this again. And then I went on from that agency sales to selling media for Condé Nast, which is GQ, Vanity Fair, Arc Digest, several brands. And each of those brands has its own vision, its own story, and its own audience. And I would call on Lexus and Guest Jeans to explain to them why they should run that particular campaign in this particular magazine and, and learn how to do all that. Um, and then, of course, that got disrupted back in 2008 when the economy tanked and luxury advertising went away and I had to reinvent myself and learn how to sell digital. And then, ironically, Condé Nast hired me back and I ended up winning salesperson of the year. And that was my big aha moment. One thing I want, I remember when you told me this story years ago is, can you go dig into that specific piece a little bit more? Because I remember you, you said that they had laid you off, mm-hmm. but then there was something you did to re-engage with them. I think you wrote an email to them or something like that, if I remember correctly. The day I was being laid off, I was being laid off with all the other outside offices outside of New York and 30% of the New York staff. And I've been there 15 years. And they said, you know, you need to be out in 24 hours. I'm like, oh boy, I need some help. I've got plants and furniture and art in here. But I still said, well, don't you want a status turnover report of where the ads are scheduled to run and what issue and what page? And she said, wow, that would be great. But everyone else is so angry, they're just storming out. So that I said, I care about these clients too much. I've watched them get married and have kids. And, you know, uh, I wouldn't do that to them just because I'm being disrupted. And little did I know, Harry, that that one decision to leave that turnover status report is what would allow me to leave on such good terms that I would get rehired. Yeah, it's so interesting because a lot of times people get let their emotions take control and they, they want to storm out. They want to burn every bridge they can. Yep. And they don't well, think about the implications of, of, of actually what a long-term relationship looks like. Well, that's where the emotional EQ comes into play, isn't it? As opposed to just our IQ. And I talk about that in my TEDx talk about the lessons I learned as a lifeguard which is don't panic, stay calm when someone's drowning. Mm. And the same thing happened when I was being laid off. That lifeguard training kicked in. Again, another example of something from your past helping you in the situation. Don't panic, stay calm. And, you know, as I was leaving my office that day, I felt scared and sad and all kinds of emotions. Um, so it was like a kick in the gut. I'm not going to say it was, oh, I was like a Zen monk through all of this, but I was able to have some emotional intelligence that I didn't have to blow up the building, as you said, and storm out. I never thought I'd be coming back, but I did. And then I ended up winning salesperson of the year. And that was my big aha moment. And actually what's been my whole purpose now is I'm the same person, mm. whether I'm being laid off or winning the salesperson of the year award for the whole company, not just the magazine I was working at. And so how can I help people when I give these keynote sales talks and write my book, get off the self-esteem roller coaster 
I only feel good if my numbers are up. I feel bad if my numbers are down. And we can do that as podcast hosts. Oh, if I'm not selling sponsorships or I'm not getting this many downloads or likes or comments, then it's a bad episode. And I, and I thought, what? I'm a bad host and I don't have good guests and the guests aren't sharing it enough and all that stuff that we get so stuck on our head. How about I had a great conversation? How about I put something good into the world? How about that relationship with that guest turned into something I could never have anticipated and not be so attached to the outside outcomes in that particular moment defining our self-esteem? What's something that you learned along the way because uh, obviously you've had conversations with people in person and you, you've spoken on stage, but what's different about the medium of podcasting that you learned in terms of how you a- interact with your guests during your conversations? I act as if it is in person. Mm. I think that's the big thing Yeah, is that I'm still talking to a person. And if someone's written a book, I've read the book and I have a specific question about the book. And I pride myself on asking questions that somebody else hasn't asked. I don't ask what I consider the obvious questions. Um, you know, I see here you have a martial arts background. I just did this with one of my guests who's based in Finland and he books speakers for a forum they have there. And I was fascinated that he had a martial arts background. And how does that help you as a leader? And what lessons did you learn as a, in martial arts that you can translate into leadership that everyone can listen to and have that come alive? What's your story? And then I really listen for what someone says that could be a tweet. And I try to summarize for my listeners what someone has said as a takeaway. And I also look for guests that have something of value to offer. And that's what I try to do when I'm a guest. Mm -hmm. And I, I recently shared with you this whole concept again of, you know, is it enough to get on a podcast? It's a great way to promote a book. And, you know, we were in the same training where they said, you know, if you, whether you're giving a talk or on an episode of, a, if you have something that people can download, a little PDF, and I remember you working on yours, that has great content, beautifully designed, that actually provides value. And so I was recently on a podcast about sales. And at the end, I said, you know, if anybody wants to text the word pitch, and I have to really enunciate the P, usually gets a big laugh. Um because one time I didn't enunciate the P and people were like, what? I'm not texting that word. Um, so P with a pitch uh, to a number, you know, 66866. Then I email you a free sneak peek of my better selling through storytelling book. And, you know, you see that starts to build up the email list. Again, I cannot get crazy on how many names are being uploaded or not. So I just do that. Well, the irony is I heard from someone who did that. And he told me, he said, I bought your book and I uh, listened to it and I would love to reach out. Um, I'm in sales and I think I know somebody that might want to hire you uh, as a speaker for the organization based on your specialties of uh, design and architecture that you speak to. And he said, but you know, what's interesting was, had I just heard you on the podcast, I never would have jumped to your website or Amazon to buy the book. It was that step of text the word pitch to 66866 and the PDF was so well done, made me want to know more, that made me want to buy the book that now has made me want to reach out to you. So that journey yeah. uh, is, I think, really helpful for podcast hosts and guests, because a lot of us are both guests and hosts, to realize it's not enough just to be a guest. You got to give somebody a step 
that's easy without going, go to my website and sign up for my email list. That's not going to do it. Or go buy my book. That's still not going to do it, no matter how great a guest you are. Yeah. So I really encourage all my guests to say, you know, if you have anything that makes it easy for people to get a taste of what you're offering, it really uh, is a secret ingredient. It's like baking a cake. If you leave something out, a cake won't rise. So that's been my big aha lately of the magic of podcasting. And what I think is important and what I've seen you do consistently is really think about not only the experience you have when people come on your show, but because you know what it's like to have a bad guest, you'd never want to be that bad guest in someone else's show and make sure you're continuously providing value for their audience as well and being and being conscious of that. Yes. it's uh, You don't want to be the person that, uh, you don't want to be the guest that's one word answers, nor do you want to be the guest that goes on and on and on. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's a skill of speaking in sound bites. Um, I think one of the skills that I've improved on as a host is not asking more than one question at a time. Because I tend to do that. I get so excited. I have three questions for you. Let me give you all three. And the, and the guest goes, I don't know what I answer first. What was the second question? So yeah. that is also um, part of being a good host, I think. How else have you improved as a host, you know, as you're hitting episode 200? And I am, uh, interestingly enough, myself with, with this show, um, as of this publication, I'll have already crossed the 200 mark. Um, but I'm wondering what you've learned and, and how to be a better host in, in your interactions with guests. I think the pre-chat conversation is really key Agreed. to let them know it's not live. And I'm really big on it. So that means... You know, it's one thing, see, what I teach in my book and in the talks I give is it's not enough to just tell a fact or a feature. You need to connect the dots, tell the story, what this means to you is. So the show is not live. What that means to you is you don't have to be perfect. You can stop and start. You can say, let me think about that. We'll edit all that out. Down, decreases the stress and the pressure on the guest. Oh, okay. So that's one thing. Then I'm very clear that what my intent is. My goal for the listeners is that they're informed, inspired, and entertained. So if we do any of those things, we're in good shape. And that's something you actually walk, walk your guests through prior to starting. Yeah, that's so important. That's really good. And I tell them the first question I'm going to ask you is, what's your tell, tell me your story of origin so they can be prepared before it. And then um, I said, any questions for me? I make sure I do that. And, and then I usually say, I'm going to give a little countdown because somebody I had who was very, you know, credible and a great guest, but hadn't done a podcast before. And I said, it's not live, but I said, okay, I'm going to count down for the editor so they know where to start as opposed to it's just, all, you know, um, and I went three, two, one, and they freaked out. Suddenly they thought it was going live. So I go, okay, so I'm going to do a countdown. It's just for editing purposes. <laughs> So all those little nuances, you know, yeah. that you just get, you know, oh, okay, let me not do that again to somebody. Um, so that those are some of the things that I, I've done. To, that. Ever, ever since I've uh, known you and we've been friends, John, I've always uh, been struck by how conscious you are in your relationships and, and your interactions with people. And I'm wondering, like, where that comes from, like, who, who, who you were inspired, uh, who inspired you growing up? Well... I think my parents get credit for that. My mom had always told all of us, I have two younger sisters, you can be anything you want to be, so dream big. And my dad was all about friendships are the most important thing in life. 
And I saw both of them really modeling that and volunteering their time and taking an active interest in somebody else is life. And so even as a kid, I was always curious. So much so that my youngest sister, who's five years younger than I am, when she was dating a guy in, in high school or something, she'd be like, oh, please don't Phil Donahue in them. I go, what do you mean? Phil Donahue, for those who don't remember, uh, or, or too young, it was a talk show host, yeah. and a daytime talk show host. And um, so I would be like, even back then, I was acting like I was a host. So um, uh, how long have you lived here? Uh, what are your hobbies? And my sister's like, don't ask my boyfriend those questions. You're not my parent. Um, <laughs> just because you're five years older. So, um, But I was always curious to find out people's stories. But, you know, that that sense of... Well, let me give you another example. I, um, I belong to this um, networking group here in LA, and um, someone introduced me to someone who was, as I mentioned earlier, visiting from Finland and looking to find some speakers here in the States to bring over to his event. And, um, you know, he gets swarmed, as you can imagine, by a lot of other speakers. So I waited my turn to say hello. And... Uh, you know, sometimes he said, it's for next year. And you could see some people suddenly go, okay, well, nice to meet you. If you're not hiring somebody for the next month, then I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in it for the long game, yeah. whether it's relationship-wise or otherwise. And um, so I said to him, how long are you in L.A. for? And are you by yourself? Because actually, no, I'm with my daughter and my niece, and we're here for another five days doing some touristy things as well as interview. I said, oh, well, if you'd like to have coffee, I'm happy to meet you for coffee and show you some of my favorite things in LA. Again, I wasn't attached to whether he was going to hire me or not. I said, I've been to Finland and I, the people there were so warm and friendly to me. I'd like to return the favor, pay it forward, whatever. And um, so, you know, I took his daughter into a toy store. She bought some toys. He sent me a picture when he went back to Finland of the playing with the toys. You know, I've had him on my podcast. Um, he just posted something on LinkedIn saying, you know, how much he learned from me about storytelling and what makes a good talk. So that, I built that relationship, you know, whether, it was, you know, they're meeting next month to decide, you know, which speakers are bringing in next year. But that is a very different than just, hey, I'm a speaker. Here's my card. You know, again, I'm using the podcast to build a relationship mm -hmm. and helping him. And I said, it's heard in over 60 countries. So perhaps that will help drive some people to come as guests who pay money. You know, he's got George Clooney coming, for God's sake. So, but he also has non-famous people coming, uh, which is where I might fit in. But um, that's an example of podcast relationships and how things can evolve. Can you think of a relation, another relationship you've had um, with a mentor who's also inspired you along the way? Mm, Tim Sanders. Okay. 15, 16 years ago, I read his book, Love is the Killer App. And he talked about your network is your net worth and the importance of reading books and summarizing those books and passing that on to people. And so I reached out to him and gave an example of a book I read and how his book inspired me. And at the time I was working on my first book uh, and um, I mentioned it to the um, publisher. I said, oh, you know, maybe, uh, and I hadn't met Tim in person or anything. You know, maybe I could eventually ask him to give me a little testimonial. Who knows? I mean, I was so inspired by what he had done as the chief solutions officer at Yahoo. Um, and I love that title. And I said, oh, there's somebody who's written a book that's in the business world, that's not the CEO. But um, 
And the publisher said, well, why don't you ask him to write the foreword? I'm like, write the foreword? I don't even know him. <laughs> so when I got the courage to do that, and he said, well, uh, I've never written a foreword for someone else. I, uh, let me look at, let me talk to my agent and my publisher and my own brand and send me what your book is. And it was a big thing. And uh, when he said yes, that was a moment I'll never forget where, oh, somebody I really respect and who's hugely successful, he's been on the Today Show, all this um, New York Times bestseller, thinks I have something here. And we've stayed in touch this entire time. He was an advisor on a startup I was involved with. Um, we're constantly talking about what it's like as speakers. And he's always giving me tips and connecting me to, you know, some of the people he works with and vice versa, obviously. Um, after I give a talk, you know, someone's like, you know, um, we're looking for a speaker um, that can help us with collaboration. I'm like, oh, let me, you need to talk to Tim Sanders. Um, he wrote a book called Deal Storming, which is on that very topic. You know, and Tim mentioned my story of Condé Nast and winning salesperson of the year through collaboration in his book. He wrote the foreword to my book. So, it's just all dovetailed amazingly well, as an example. How important are friendships to you? Well, that's what my dad said. <laughs> I think, you know, the need to connect and have a tribe is what keeps us from feeling so lonely. Mm. And we, that's what a good friend does, is they're not jealous, they're not competitive, they're cheering you on. And certain friends have a hard time doing that. And those are people sometimes that you might need to let go of. Um, it's the people who literally are cheering you on and are equally interested in you. It's not like, oh, you want to be my friend? Great. Then you're my audience. You know, you just cheer me on all the time. It's, uh, yeah. And it's just like, you're only transactional. Uh, I never ask you about you basically. Mm. <laughs> so I think a good friend is, and I've been blessed enough to have several for many, many years. And it's, you know, we get to, pick our friends. We don't get to pick our family. So um, <laughs> it's really a, a, a special thing, I think. The other thing that we've had some nice discussions about is actually the entrepreneurial journey mm. and the ups and downs associated with it. And mm -hmm. you've probably had conversations, people who've had great success and people who probably not shortly after their conversation with you, maybe didn't go or didn't have their company go where they would like it to. So um, it takes a, a bit of fortitude to weather, weather those storms. Yes. And I, and I know we've talked about this. So can you touch upon that and, and how the journey you've been on has given you some perspective on, expe on managing expectations? Yes. I think there's a couple of things there. There's something called the trough of despair that people can Google if they haven't heard of that before, which is you're going to have the highs in, of, oh, I've got them with this great idea and I'm all excited about this new thing. And then something doesn't happen as fast, whether it's funding or a new customer or competition comes, whatever it is that causes you to go, oh, what am I thinking? What am I doing? I've wasted time and money. Uh, and you go into this despair. And then it's up to us how long we stay there. And I have a great story I'd love to share with you about resilience. Um, and I think that really is the key to getting out of that trough of despair, whether it's a day, a week, months, years for some people. And I've certainly had that even before being an entrepreneur, being laid off was, you know, you could choose to let that become a trough of despair. I'll never get hired again, you could say to yourself, or that's it, you know, all that negativity, or I'm obsolete, print is dead, you know, I can't reinvent myself, I can't learn anything else. And I think, you know, the concept of 
not being so attached to an outcome. And I have learned this over the years. You know, I used to live my life, even as a kid, well, as soon as I get out of Illinois in these cold weather, I'll be happy. As soon as I get this great job, I'll be happy. As soon as I get this car, this house, whatever it is, never in the moment, as soon as. So the expectations are, I need this to happen in order to be happy, as opposed to I just be happy now. Mm -hmm. And that is the big shift for me is uh, if you're, as soon as I have this big exit and have this much money in the bank, then I'll be happy. And I will not let myself be happy or feel safe or secure. I think of myself as a stock. You know, when I'm dipping into my IRA savings to invest in my speaking career or the podcast production or whatever it is, I'm like, I would you invest in, I don't know, any stock? Do you think that's going to go up? Do you believe, are you working hard? <laughs> Do you believe you have the resource? You know, I, what do I look for in a stock I invest in? So it's the same thing if we start to think of ourselves as a brand and an investment. I'm investing in me, and therefore I think that's going to pay off. Even if I don't see exactly how fast it's going to pay off. The, so the resilience story I want to share with you is um, twofold. And it has to do with giving my TEDx talk. Because that obviously, writing a book... And giving a TEDx talk are two things that uh, give you some credibility in the speaking world. Um, people find you through your TEDx talk and all that stuff. So I said, okay, it was even a big goal to say, I want to give a TEDx talk. Like, who do you think you are is the internal voice. Then I realized that you have to give a different talk on that stage than you do when you're in front of a sales team. And so I said to a friend, he goes, oh, I know somebody who organizes the one in San Diego. And he also coaches people on how to give a good one. So great, I went and paid and did that training. And then it took me a year and a half, 15 no's before I got a yes. Wow. And I said, I got to really walk my own talk here of not taking those no's personally. And they'd be like, look, your talk is good. You're a good speaker, but it doesn't fit our theme for the day. Mm. So Okay. So when I got a yes, it was for one that had a theme around amazement. And the woman who was speaking before me, her name is Bonnie St. John. And she had lost the lower half of her left leg at 12 and went on to do downhill skiing uh, in the Paralympics. And she was on stage in a skirt, wearing her prosthetic leg, wearing the Paralympic medals around her neck. And I had to follow her, by the way. So she tells a story of they would take your two times going down the hill and whoever had the best combined time would win. And so the first hill, she was the fastest first place. Second hill, icy, everybody was falling. Sure enough, she fell. At the end, they go, you came in second place. While you were the fastest skier, you weren't the fastest person to get up. Mm, and so wow. that was her message of resilience. And I went, oh, so the trough of despair as an entrepreneur, how fast am I going to get back up? Yeah. And that's, that's hopefully uh, valuable for people listening on that. Yeah, it's something to think about. And I think um, I've been guilty of this as well, to just wallow in, in the moment of the, the trough, as mm -hmm. you call it. Um, and I think if you, do, if you do it long enough, you know that there always is going to be an upside. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, what, what, type of, what type of things have you found that, that have helped you work through those troughs? You know, be it uh, spirituality, meditation, exercise, you know, all of the above. Well, I think studying it is also mm. just just awareness. Yes, yeah, I heard a quote from Susie Orman saying the number the distinction between the top one percent producers in real estate versus the people struggling every month to make ends meet 
is how fast they handle rejection. The top 1% moves on right away. And the other people say they do, but they don't. For two weeks, they're moping around the office, still reliving it, talking about it. So for me, the tool is I think of myself as the director of my own movie, and I can yell cut at any time. <laughs> so when I'm playing that scene over, I'm like, oh, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that person said that or did that, or I can't believe I didn't get that whatever. I'm like, cut, 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 cut. Who do I want to cast? What, do I, what movie do I want to see? I go back to stacking my moments of certainty. What did it feel like when I got that yes? What's my purpose? What do I believe about myself? And, you know, it goes back to this whole premise. We either think that the world is a safe, friendly place or we don't. And from that belief system, we take our thoughts come out of that and our actions come out of that. And we're either looking for things to be joyful and grateful for or we're looking for things to be angry and complain about. It sounds like you might have a future career in creating motivational tapes. I'm saying tapes. I'm dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> motivational, you know, those snippets of yes. um, sound bites with that inspirational music behind. Because yep. mm -hmm. I've already heard a couple of sound bites that would sound great as a affirmation, a daily affirmation. There you go. I'm, su I'm surprised no one's asked you for that yet. <laughs> I'm ready. Um, <laughs> there's probably so many to list, but when you when you think about what the podcast has brought you that you couldn't have imagined? What's something that comes to mind, that one or two things that wouldn't have been possible if you didn't have the podcast? Number one, relationships. Absolutely relationships. Yeah. Um, you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> those kind of friendships, the relationships with the guests, the ability to offer somebody something that can help them by being a guest. It's allowed me to be a better guest on podcasts. Yeah, Podcast hosts are much more willing to have you on their show if you have your own podcast because they know you know what it takes to be a good guest. Turning my podcast into a book, which then got me on television, which then gives me credibility as a speaker. Having that unique bio, it's just as a way to keep in touch. I'm creating weekly content without writing a word. Exactly. That, those are just some of the things off the top of my head of all the benefits of it. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. A um, couple of questions as we wrap up. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Letting go of control. Mm, that's a good um, one. Uh, you know, and, and letting go of the surprise when something doesn't work out the way I think it should. I've changed my mind about expecting everyone to have the same level of competence and excellence that I do. Mm. So uh, I'm like, instead of being shocked by it or aggravated by it, I'm like, that's okay. <laughs> well, you know, why am I shocked that the bank made a mistake or whatever it is, or that what I thought was going to be a slam dunk didn't happen? Mm. Um, or, uh, you know, the dentist said that would be my last surgery and turns out it's not. <laughs> you know, letting, changing my mind about what? I thought this was, you know, and, you know, yeah. just because someone says, here's the journey and something happens and it gets disrupted. I've changed my mind about reacting so much to it. That's really good. Um, what's the most mis misunderstood thing about you? Wow. The most misunderstood thing about me is that I quote, I'm a natural speaker. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, many times people will say to me after talk, wow, you're a natural. I'm like, thanks. You have no idea how much I've worked on it and how much time and money I've invested to yeah. come across as someone who does it naturally, that it's, you don't see the work. That's, you know, you don't say that about Meryl Streep. She's a natural. Mm, that's and true. People go, yeah. she studied, she went to Yale, you know, she, I'm sure she rehearses and, you know, you can have natural talent, 
that needs to be developed. Uh, one of my favorite examples around that is um, my friends are, that are professional photographers. Um, sometimes people say, oh, you must, well, you must have had a really great camera to take that picture. Nobody says that to a chef. What kind of oven did you use? Yeah. So the same thing with speaking. It's like, oh, you're a natural. That just comes easy for you to get up on stage and entertain and inspire and inform us. And um, so I think that's the, is the aha. And even, you know, when I've said, I've heard other speakers, I heard, um, you know, a, a famous, you know, the woman who wrote uh, Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert speak. And I was talking to somebody else in the audience afterwards. And I said, oh, wasn't that clever the way she said, oh, do we have time for one more story? And then she told that great story and had all that ready to go. He goes, what do you mean? That was completely spontaneous. And he did not want to know what went into that. And I'm like, okay, sorry. Didn't need to take you behind the curtain. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I just want to thank you for being a, a friend for such yeah. a long time. I'm, I'm grateful for um that we, we got to connect so, so many years ago and that we've maintained our relationship. I love when things come full circle. And now, you know, having known when you were thinking, when, when the podcast was just a twinkle in your eye and, and seeing what you've done to the show is really so admirable um, and, and inspiring as well. So I imagine I, I, I can't see you giving it up. <laughs> it seems to be a passion of yours now. Yeah. Um, so I want to really uh, just publicly thank you for, for being my friend and for sharing your story with my audience today, John. Well, Harry, it's mutual. I, I value our friendship, your support, and it wouldn't have happened without you. <laughs> so there's a couple of things you've got in the works. Um, so first off, what's the best place for folks to, to engage with you uh, online and continue with the conversation if they'd like to? Sure. Uh, on Twitter, it's at John underscore Livesey, L-I-V as in Victor, E-S-A-Y, uh, the Pitch Whisperer on Instagram. So if you can't remember better selling through storytelling um, you can Google the Pitch Whisper, and my content will come up that way. And again, if you want a free sneak peek, text the word PITCH with a P to 66866. And uh, the book is out now? It is. It's on Audible. I narrated it in Kindle, and uh, you can pre-order the um, paperback, which will be out soon. How, how, how was the narr narration experience? Fascinating. <laughs> uh, 40,000 words. It was three two-hour sessions. Wow. And then an hour pickup, and it's uh, you even I even caught a couple of typos because I don't, <laughs> you know, and I had a copy editor and I. And what's weird is you know you're not going to read your book out loud unless of it's course. for an audible tape. Of so course. six hours to read a book, but you find you know so that's an unexpected benefit is catching a typo before it went to press by reading the audible. Well, very cool. Thanks again for your time, John. We'll have all those links you mentioned in the show notes. And uh, again, thanks for sharing your story, and hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks, Harry. So thanks again to John for coming on the show. Apologies for the quality of my audio. Uh, seem to not have had a good connection with my mic at that time. So that's on me and not John. Thanks again to our sponsors, Focusrite and the fantastic Scarlet 2i2. And also Aweber, sponsor of the Beyond the Podcast Summit. September 18th from 11 a.m. Eastern to 3 p.m. Eastern. Go to beyondthepodcastsummit.com to sign up for free and be entered for a chance to win some brand new podcasting gear. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. If you're listening this far, it's the retention hashtag you're looking for. Let's go with hashtag StorytimeJohn in honor of his amazing ability to tell great stories. You can tag him at John underscore Livesey and myself at podcast underscore junkies. 
Thanks for everything you do and have a fantastic week.